Hello and welcome to Caged In, the podcast where we go film by film through Nicolas Cage's career to find out if he is top dog or just plain dog shit. Uh, I get my guests on, I ask them a few questions about their personal experiences with Cage. Are they Nicolas Cage fans? What was the first Nicolas Cage film they remember seeing? And what is their favourite Nicolas Cage film? And specifically for the film at hand, and this week I will be talking about Dog Eat Dog, Paul Schrader's second team up with Nicolas Cage after the ill-fated dying of the light. And the questions I ask specifically for the film is, does Nick Cage have bad hair? Does he do a crazy voice or does he freak out? This week, I am joined by a fellow Nicolas Cage podcast. Now, I give them a proper introduction after the other little bit of music that comes in. But yeah, this is a good one. You will very much enjoy it. Um, Before, obviously, we get fully into it, I should probably mention that we spoil this film. So if you haven't seen it, now is your chance to pause the podcast and go watch it and then come back and uh yeah join me matt and scott as we talk about it but if you yeah you need some help as to where you can find the podcast uh if you are living in the uk you can stream dog eat dog on amazon prime Unfortunately, if you're in the US, this is not available for streaming at this current time. Uh, hopefully, you're back if you have paused the podcast for if you really, really want to watch film or you just feel like I'm living dangerously, I'm living like Cage. I'm just going to go straight through and ruin it for me and enjoy the conversation. Uh, one last thing before we get into the episode. Uh, this was recorded a few months back and it was very soon after the tragic events, uh, well, the, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the subsequent um, protests and kind of pro- police brutality that uh, ensued in America. I'm saying this all up front because that is discussed in this episode and at the time, like, well, there's there's things that happen in this film, and it felt timely then to talk about it, and, and it's still important to talk about it now. Um, I can't. I'm kind of glad because it feels like uh, a lot in the kind of rhetoric online and kind of in the media, all that stuff's died down. As is the way of the world we're living in now. It's kind of even big causes have their 15 minutes. Then we're on to the next thing, which is a, a crying shame when we talk about racism and prejudice to, uh, yeah, to, to people. But unfortunately, that is the world we live in, but it's not the world we want to live in. We can all make small changes. So this is enough of me chatting. I'll let you enjoy the episode, then I'll chat to you at the end as every week kind of give you the spill and let you know what is coming up on next week's episode. 
taste is left at the door and Paul Schrader's fuck you to Hollywood after the misfortune of dying of the light. A cocaine-soaked dark comedy crime drama that throws cinematic norms to the wind. Nick Cage stars as Troy, teamed up with Mad Dog and Diesel, played by Willem Dafoe and Christopher Michael Cook, respectively. I knew I needed my own Mad Dog and Diesel to tackle this thrill ride, so I enlisted Scott and Matt of Nobody Puts Nick in a Cage to get down and dirty to the nitty-gritty of 2016's Dog Eat Dog. How are you guys doing today? Fantastic. I'm going to be Mad Dog. He could be fucking Diesel since he's <laughs> a fucking useless character. Diesel's fucking... <laughs> You're fucking Diesel for sure. <laughs> cool. Just so we know who's who, uh, yeah. So, Scott, do you want to introduce... So, Scott is the... That's where it is. I don't know if you do video as well. I'm the bald guy. On <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> this voice, I'm Scott. And I'm Matt. Perfect. So before AKA we get Diesel, <laughs> before we get deep into talking about Dog Eat Dog, there's obviously a few things we should probably talk about. Is the fact that you are the first and only Nicholas Cage podcast I have had as guests on on this Nicholas Cage podcast. It feels like I'm in I don't know some weird Avengers style multiverse or something. Or, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, before before we get into talking about this movie, like. What made you guys like do a Nicolas Cage podcast? <laughs> well, we we've been friends for a while, and we wanted to do a kind of a movie related podcast. So we started, we recorded two episodes of something that never saw the daylight, never probably ever, ever will. <laughs> we, um, we we were just you know kind of rehashing old, you know the, the same old. We watched this movie. Here's what we think about it. Or here we thought about it. And, while it wasn't bad, we were just like, ah, we want to do something more. I happen to be, uh, I was a Nicolas Cage fan for a while, but I happened to also be a huge community fan. And I, it was one time when we were recording, I thought of the, I believe it was in season six, Abed does an entire, um, <laughs> he takes a class on Nicolas Cage's yes. acting style. And I just thought about like, oh man, that'd be so great if we parlay that also into a podcast. Because one, it's niche. Two, he, I mean, the man has done so many movies, and as we talk in our podcast, for so many poor uh, financial decisions that he made in the 2000s and on that have forced him to do like a thousand movies, it feels like. And we thought, hey, why don't we, why don't we cover him? Because we really do have respect for his acting. Uh, we believe that he is one of the best actors, maybe the best actor living. And we wanted to break that uh, belief that, oh, he's just a meme. He's just the guy who has cage rages, and all he can do is lose his shit, you know, and be funny on screen. So we decided that we would watch all his movies uh, two a week, and then we would talk about them, one mainstream, one not. But what surprises us, I, I won't speak for Matt though, is uh, we're, I think we're newest in the Cage podcast realm. We've looked up some others, we're like, holy crap, man, there's a lot more than us. Um, but we're kind of surprised to find out that one, that you have this competition, there's like this uh, battle, and uh, two, that no one else has come on your show. I mean, you had Brian Taylor, which we're very impressed with, and uh, we kind of feel like we need to level our game up to get someone like that on ours. Well, it's just crazy. With stuff like that, Like, I, I, I was just amazed that seeing as there's such a plethora of Nicolas Cage-based podcasts that nobody had reached out to these people. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like they're on Twitter. Like, All it took for me was to just like literally at him. like, <laughs> and, and, and he said, yeah, I'll do it. And it's like, you guys have been doing this for years. Like, 
Like and and you like some of them like it looks like they've got like teams behind it. I'm like I'm just one idiot in his parents' <laughs> spare room, and I managed to get like Brian Taylor on and like yeah like <laughs> other guests that like I've got planned and like people have people I've managed to speak to like from doing the podcast. I found out that uh, Larry Charles is working on a new edit of um, Army of One, and I was like. Why, why, like, why is nobody, why has nobody else found this out? Like, I'm, I'm just always like amazed that like it's taken this idiot to like to, to get there. Like, and like, yeah, the, the the amazing people who have like been willing to speak to me, like, n- like from the film industry. So yeah, not just Brian Taylor. So had um, Todd Farmer, the writer and actor from Drive Angry and uh the writer of outcast i'm not sure if you guys have covered that on your podcast yet not yet oh boy you're in for a treat <laughs> i'll tell you that for sure um so yeah before we get into things uh i have three questions i always ask and i think well we we all know the answer to the first one <laughs> which is are you guys nick cage fans fuck yeah <laughs> easy podcast dumb yeah yeah he's i mean how can you not be you know and that's my my question is always how are you not a nicholas cage fan i mean even if you just watch him even if you think he's a joke for all the cage rage even if you watch him for just that you're gonna have an amazing journey because it's like outcast some of these other movies we've seen that aren't his mainstays he does some crazy shit and i'm like he's willing to go places that no other actors are really willing to go and it's just they're just fun and entertaining to watch. Even his, you know, the throwaway movies, his dime store shelf movies are, are pretty freaking fun just to be a part of. Well, there's They're one fun. there's one that I love, which is Stolen. Like I I I would that is like the hill that I will die on. Like, and it's one of those movies that like you look at the cover and you're like, Oh, I'm gonna give that a wide berth. But then you stick it on and like because it's directed by Simon West, who did uh Con Air. Like it knows exactly what it is and doesn't try to pretend to be anything else. And like you get Cage with a downplayed performance, like it's given to someone else to give that like manic performance. And like that film's great. And like if I didn't do this podcast, I would have never have watched that film because it looks like, as I said, the poster looks fucking terrible. <laughs> There's a lot of bad posters out there. It <laughs> <laughs> Oh, someone needs to really learn how to do correct and good graphic designing for film posters. <laughs> well, it's it's not... funny. Sorry, it's funny you say that because Matt and I had a conversation about that. The movie, I don't know if you've seen The Trust that's on Netflix. Now, we, we both enjoy the movie. We have different takes on how we like the ending. But the poster for the movie is atrocious. It's it's the worst. It's like someone's grandparents learned Photoshop and put this this <laughs> film together. Like if you see the poster, you you think that there's some kind of diamond heist going on. It's not that at all. Uh, it's a really decent movie and one of my more enjoyable ones. But oh my god, some of the posters are just they're just atrocious. They're horrific. Well, I'm always dubious of any movie, especially the latter day stages of his career, when it has the Academy winner Nicolas Cage because it's like that's your selling point. That is the that is your sole selling point for this movie, isn't it? And it's like that your budget's gone on Cage and not not a lot else. Like uh, the one that springs to mind straight away is Pay the Ghost, which again uh, <laughs> we haven't got there yet. Have you seen Between Worlds yet? Yes, yes, yes. He drags everyone in that movie on his back. He pulls everyone along. No one else 
Famke doesn't even doesn't even utter a syllable of actual acting. It is the worst performance I've ever seen her do. And he he literally is, he's trying everything. He's carrying everyone he can. Like he's trying to cross the finish line. Everyone's just like, I'm just gonna grab a paycheck. Yeah, he even he's carrying the director even <laughs> through that whole movie. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting one because it's kind of got like uh, pretensions to be like a David Lynch film or like uh, whereas and like e- even down to the point where like the director got An- Angelo Badalamenti to do like yeah. the, to do to do the opening theme and it's like you don't just like you don't just like tease us with like some Lynchisms and then don't deliver like. Which, yeah, I think it's something that will definitely come up when talking about Dog Eat Dog today because there's already the connection of Willem Dafoe and the way this film looks. But before we get to that, I'll go to you first, Scott. Um, what was the first Nick Cage movie you remember seeing? It's oof, That's a great question. Um, I believe it is Raising Arizona. Um, I'm a child of the 80s, but I, it's, it's going to be sad. I didn't get into some of the high school movies of the 80s until later on in life. So I didn't see Fast Time at Ridgemont High. I didn't see Peggy Sue Got Married. I didn't see uh, Valley Girl till much later on. So my first real in, uh, introduction to him was uh, as High McDonough in Raising Arizona. And I mean, what, what, a, what an amazing introduction. I mean, it's like he sets the bar high early in his life right from from that go so that was probably my first and then his 90s action movies you know i mean you know obviously if you're not a child of the 90s and you got listeners who are millennials and didn't remember this i mean he had you know he had a, two years in a row where he releases con air he releases uh the rock and face off all within a span of 13 months and yeah. he makes like hundreds of millions of dollars it's r- ridiculous yeah and um obviously it's weird that uh well not weird like uh that Raising Arizona is your first film because again another weird connection to Dog Eat Dog in a way uh, in some of the subject matter in it and we'll get to that in a minute so uh, <laughs> I'll move on to to you now Matt what was the first Nick Cage uh, movie you remember seeing so uh, this actually took a, a lot of actual research I had to look up releases of VHS tapes to determine <laughs> which was the first one I seen. And I figured it out. It was leaving Las Vegas. Wow. I took a VHS tape from my parents when they weren't paying attention and watched it. Mostly because I wanted to see some nudity. And that was released on VHS in 1997, March 18th. <laughs> on June. So this is where I was like, what, it's this or The Rock? It's got to be one of the two. So I had to pull the original releases of the VHSs to figure out which one we had first at home. And it was only off by from March, June 9th, uh, 97, uh, was the release of The Rock on VHS. Which is funny because both films, one came out 95 and one came out 96. Mm-hmm. Both got 97 VHS releases. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was uh, Leaving Las Vegas. Which is a, a crazy entry point to Cage. And obviously like, a lot a lot of people would argue it's all downhill from there like that 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 obviously is the oscar winner that is the a lot of people still hold that up as his best role which i was is... also roughly 12 years old when i stole that vhs and watched <laughs> as i think o- i think what you're 
I think what you're politely stepping over is the fact that he watched it just to see nudity. He wasn't watching it for oh, it being an Oscar-winning film. He just wanted to get a quick TNA in there yeah. so that he could uh, arouse his young 12-year-old mind. Well, like, exactly. I couldn't think of anyone better than Elizabeth Shue, <laughs> to be honest. Like, well, oh boy. Ever since Karate Kid. <laughs> yep. um, so yeah, uh, I'll, I'll stick with you, Matt, on the next question, which is, what is your favorite Nick Cage movie? This is a toughie. Yeah, this is this was a really hard one. So um, I'm gonna go with his performance as Fu Manchu from Grindhouse, <laughs> where the SF uncredited. No, 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 no. His ten, ten seconds on screen. This is my mecca. That's all he says. <laughs> um, no, my my favorite performance is Raising Arizona. Um, that. Um, I have a great memory of uh, purchasing uh, the Coen Brothers uh, movie collection on DVD in like 20, in 2007, I want to say it came out, um, that collection. And that was when I was like, fell in love with him. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like, yeah, now I got to just watch everything that I haven't seen before. Well, that that is arguably like the first Nicolas Cage performance or at least like the prototype of what we were to get in that like he really leaned into like especially like I don't know, you can see the influences of like cartoon characters I know that was a big thing for him that's why he he insisted on the uh Woody Woodpecker tattoo because <laughs> he wanted to channel that energy and like that is the first time we get those glimpses of that like boarding in on the mad but like great like Oh, this guy's got a glint in his eye that is like he's he's gonna do some, yeah. And obviously, a, a cup. Well, I think I think filmed in, around the same time, Vampires Kiss, which like I think is like an underrated masterpiece. But uh, <laughs> that's a that's a whole another that's a whole another <laughs> two hours, three hours conversation. So uh, yeah, I move over to you, Scott. And what is your favorite Nick Cage movie? Um, it is Mandy. I love him as Red Miller in Mandy. Mandy is not only my favorite performance, it's my favorite movie of his so far. Um, it's going to be harder for anyone, any of his movies to beat that. I've We talked about this on our podcast recently. I find Mandy to be maybe one of the most perfect movies uh, made modern. We have watched it. I have don't find a false step in it. Um, I think that's why we reached out to you when you asked for people to join. I was like, Mandy, I think it was the first thing we sent to you, but you already grabbed somebody. Um, but I had been wanting to see Mandy for a very long time. I remember seeing the trailer. I remember it coming out, but it wasn't out long. And I've constantly seen either glimpses of it or then when Shudder comes on, you know, it's one of their main, uh, him is one of the main pictures they have on their, their website and stuff. So when we finally did this podcast, I made sure that it was going to be in our second episode. So we did our second episode and I fell in love with it instantly. Just everything about that movie, I absolutely love. And I love his performance from, you know, very subdued, the love story that starts off the first third of the movie, then everything that happens horrifically to him in the middle of the movie to his, you know, eventual character arc to what we believe him to be. Um, since in the eighties, we think that he and Bill Dukes used to be uh, soldiers together in Vietnam. And that, uh, you know, he, he found this quiet life to, yes. to get past the horrors of Vietnam. And then they reawoken the horrors that he went through and probably dealt with. And then they brought red back to life, you know, the real yeah. red that he had hidden from. So 
the, my favorite scene, and it's a meme that a lot of people watch because they don't have the context for it, but when he's in that bathroom scene after she has just been burned alive, the emotion from anger to pure sadness is roller coaster. And anyone who's ever been through something like that, you know, like maybe lost a loved one or something, like, you have had those moments of pure anger into just pure, unadulterated crying and just, you know, a breakdown in your system. And while if you only see that, yeah, it looks like he's being funny because he's in his underwear and he's drinking vodka. But if you see where that scene starts and then where it leads to, phenomenal. Just uh, to me, it's it's a great performance. And I absolutely love, love that movie. Well, on the point of that scene and like obviously earlier talking about the fact that Nick Cage is like very much memed is out of context, as you said, like that, that looks funny. But of those kind of sizzle reel things, the, the, the classic being Nick, Nick Cage loses his shit, like that is one that is earned and like stands alone and like in the context of the movie is like, yeah, like that is, that is perfect for what is going, like what is going on in that moment. And like, it's like gut wrenching when you watch it. And like, there's a similar moment, like, and I, I think it's kind of interesting where his career is going. Like there's um, what well, I'm like, yeah, me, me, me and a guest kind of came up with this thing that he's going on this like magenta trilogy uh, by by the seams of it, which is like Mandy, Color Out of Space, and like what is l- like looking to be from like the initial poster, uh, Willy's or Wally's Wonderland. It's just going to be this kind of free kind of I don't know, almost like a sequel in tone of this kind of burgeoning on the art house, burgeoning on horror, like um, yeah, like dark films with Cage with these really interesting performances, which, like, I don't, like, like, I, like, I personally can't wait for Willie's, Wally's, well, yeah, I, I, I think it is. <laughs> we had a conversation, yeah. So I think it's finally been announced it's Willie's Wonderland, or, like, they're still waiting on the right for <laughs> Wally's. I, I have no idea, but, yeah, like, again, like, where he's at in his career, and I think it is down to um, the directors he's working with now, fans like grew up on his movies so like whether it's the uh, panos cosmotis or richard stanley have both said as well that their favorite nick cage performances are uh vampire's kiss and it's like ah oh, so that's what hit them and like when you see those when you see those movies you like look back to that and go i see like you can see the direction he's probably been given by like, we want a little bit of that energy in what we're doing here. And like, I don't know, it it, it makes for, uh, yeah. And again, a guy who's been in the game, what, like 30, 40 years, like he's still doing interesting things, which like brings us perfectly onto Paul Schrader and talking about Dog Eat Dog. Cause a man who's in his seventies and like would have been, late 60s i imagine like making dog eat dog and just seems to like push the boundaries even further than like i don't know does something different and like this film's got a really interesting like backstory right do you guys know much about that we do but we'll let you since this is your show we'll <laughs> no, 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 you no, no, no. Please, please please jump jump <laughs> jump in jump in I, I, i'm more more than happy to share the load <laughs> <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let Matt go ahead because he uh, he doesn't talk much. I always overtalk him on our podcast, anyways. Yeah, you love you love hearing yourself talk. Um, so the the backstory to this being made is that we're gonna discuss yeah. that. Um, 
wow, so I'm going to have to go through my notes. <laughs> I wasn't ready for this. Even though I just listened to our podcast of this, shows how bad we fucking do. Well, it's just I see why I talk for him. There's, that, <laughs> there's obviously that thing that there's an argument that this movie, well, would it's not even an argument. This movie never would have been made without uh, Dying of the Light. Like, because yes. this, Paul Schrader has said himself, like, this is like his two fingers up, like, uh, yeah, like. Oh. <laughs> down the that down the block like Tupac screaming, I just don't give a fuck to to Hollywood in that he got fucked over making that movie. Yeah. And Big like time. and yeah, even even down to like the way this was written. Like have you seen the thing that like obviously you guys covered it? Like it was written by uh Matthew uh da, 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 da. Vaughan, Matthew Vaughn, maybe? Matthew yeah. Wilder, I think the guy's well, name is. Wilder. Not to be mistaken for like the '80s singer uh, who, like, as I <laughs> as I googled uh, Matthew Wilder today, like the the '80s singer is trending on online because Miley Cyrus has sold him a condo in Malibu, and one of his songs has gone viral on TikTok. So uh, it was a very interesting Google trying to look for the writer of Dog Eat Dog, but um, yeah, and like Paul Schrader said in interviews that he kind of like sat down with a group of like creatives from different fields whether it's like avant-garde music and stuff like that and just wanted to pick their brains of what they could do with this movie which is a very like post-modern kind of i don't know it's all to me it feels like a collection of vignettes like matt how did like what's your like initial impressions of dog eat dog so my initial impression of this film is an acid trip noir comedy it is paul just being his most creative and just standing out and just saying i'm gonna do what the fuck i want especially after being completely fucked over with uh dying of the light um have you seen dark yes yes oh, awesome awesome um yeah um so i think that was like this was his first chance at being like okay like i'm taking it back by doing this and then his second time around was in 2017 when he did the recut um when he was making first reformed and was just like really able to be like okay now i'm gonna put out what i actually wanted to try to attempt to do before you took this from me so i had this thing like i'm not sure if i went into the movie with a kind of goodwill towards it because one a reverence for like kind of like paul schrader like is held up on this platform of being like he's the guy who wrote taxi driver like we must give him like reverence and obviously like knowing the backstory of like this is like his kind of like taking one back and like his like yeah fuck the system like it 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 casts a different light on it obviously like this film critically and like kind of commercially didn't do that great but like it takes it takes risks and there's like subtle things in it that are just like I find really interesting and like just like a real subtle kind of thing I like like jumped out at me was there's there's a moment in it where they're like they always have these interesting talks in like interesting locations and there's one where they're in like uh it's like a bar with a stripper's pole but in the background you have the stripper just like like cleaning the pole with like disinfectant or just like do you know what I mean like cleaning it up and it's like 
that is like just it shows you kind of how seedy and disgusting like these guys kind of like how much they're on the underbelly of things like what did you think scott of like the opening for this movie when it kind of like comes at you and like <laughs> that's what i was gonna say is uh if you know you're talking about his middle finger to hollywood i mean you can't middle finger hollywood quicker than the way it opens i mean I, it felt like a Quentin Tarantino opening on acid. Uh, it's all pink. The whole room is pink. Uh, you've got Willem Dafoe just sitting there in his most Willem Dafoe-like face. He is just completely enthralled by this gun rights uh, argument that's going on on the TV. He's watching. They're debating the you know whether people should have firearms. And obviously here in America, it's <laughs> Second Amendment's all people care about, it seems like. Um, but it was great because, you know, he's obviously then also flipping off the establishment with that as well. Then, you know, you have the, you have, we call her Honey Boo Boo. And when she's growing up, Honey Boo Boo comes home with Honey Boo Boo Jr. And you could just tell like this, this man who is, you know, obviously named Mad Dog for reasons that uh, we kind of get glimpses of that he's kind of almost like subdued a bit. He's been kind of like pussycatted a little bit as he sits there and he's like letting her run the show. And then she pushes his button one too many times. And when he snaps, he kills her, goes up and kills. When he goes upstairs and kills the daughter with the gun and you know, puts the pillow, shoots her twice. We were like, okay, he's not fucking around at all in this movie. Like it was at that moment, I was like, all, oh, all holds are bar are not barred. And we're just going to go for a wild ride. And it was just this, I mean, it was such a great opening. We talked about the one thing we kind of, I mean, we love Defoe. We feel like he, I don't want to jump your shark here, but I feel like he is the star of this movie. Like he is, he takes so much of the, because oh, his character is amazing because um, originally Nick was supposed to be that character, but he wanted to play the main character for reasons of the Bogart thing that you'll probably get into. And it's, it's disappointing because I would have loved to see, even though the two of them together are amazing, but I would love to see what Nick would have done with the role of Mad Dog and see how he would have played that scene. Cause it would have been a different death scene. It would have been a different way he would have played it. And, um, but yeah, that, that opening is, I mean, for just coming right out and just saying, you know, guns blazing, fuck you, punch you right in the throat. It does it right out the gate. You know what I mean? You, if, if you're sitting with your kids watching this, it's, it's, you're, you're not in for a happy story. That's all I can say. Yeah, definitely. And visually that opening is just like, it, it gets you like, it grabs you by the throat from like second to one, like just this kind of like. I don't know, it's like this 70s decor and it's like, even down to like the phone ringing on the wall, like it's obviously rigged up. So it's like vibrating and like shaking off the wall. And like, you kind of, it's got these like frames in the screen, like almost like a Zoom chat. Like it kind of like has these like little screens popping up with like just, yeah, the the, uh, gun rights thing just on a loop and just Mm -hmm. like all these different like images coming up and like you're, like going back to dark like having watched that i was like ah if schrader had kind of known or been able to do what he wanted to do i can see all of that like where he went with doing dark afterwards like there's there's specifically a scene where they like uh when they first do their like first heist like deal they have this like one of the most depressing parties in the world because it's it's free grown men in a room just doing like loads of cocaine and like i don't know <laughs> like wrestling on the bed it's like uh... it's like essentially <laughs> like i don't know it's 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 a mixture between like 
what a what thirteen year olds would do in the, in regards to like horseplay, but then there's cocaine in the mix, which just makes it even weirder. Like um, and mustard. Don't forget, uh, I think Nick Cage covers a uh, mad dog and mustard in yeah. fucking scene for no for no apparent reason. It was just here's some mustard all over them. It's uh yeah, it's thirteen year olds. If you locked them up in jail for a crime <laughs> and then let them loose to finally have the reunion together and their fucking state has not changed since the day that they went in. <laughs> Nicholas Cage is the only one kind of holding his shit together a little bit, minus the mustard. <laughs> but <sighs> the other mad dogs are fucking, he's a mad dog. <laughs> well, mad dog's a really interesting character in that, like, he's kind of like, he, he plays this, like, na- he's got this naivety to him that, like, we see, like, especially, like, throughout the film, that he's almost like a child. And then at the same time, he's just got this menace to him. And it's almost like they just let him off all the time for like the crazy shit he does. And he's like this obedient lapdog that at times just like, like if you give him enough, like, I don't know, uh, lead, he will just like bolt off and like attack someone. And like, he does it. He Like, do you know what I mean? Like in that opening scene, like I did not see that coming with like, like I, I, before watching it, I was listening to uh, Brett Easton Ellis uh, interview Paul Schrader, and like they they kind of talk about the intro and say like how how offensive it is basically. But I was like, oh, so there's something offensive is going to happen, like or like just kind of like. Ugh. But I did not know that it was going to be like this brutal, like because yeah, Willem Dafoe has this like weird, almost like girt like uh, a belt thing on his leg, isn't it? Like kind of like. But he's, he's wearing shorts and like high socks, <laughs> but he has this kind of like knife attached to his leg, which is just absolutely. But he's a he's a very he's a, he's a very interesting character and almost like a spiritual connection to uh, his character in Wild at Heart, Bobby Peru, like yes. definitely shaken from the same like rotten tree, like. Same father, different mothers, for sure. One hundred percent. It's funny you talk about the knife, but what really sends him on that spiral is he gets that phone call and he answers the phone, and the guy's asking him questions, and he asks him what he does. Well, I got a knife and I got fish. He goes, "I don't know, still a job." He's like, "I know people still call people fucking dinner." Fucking slams the phone, and he's already pissed off as it is. So when she comes in the house, she just like skips his his top spinning, and she fucks him, just piss, pisses him off. Which is, you know, just sends on that wild ride where he pulls that knife out and just, just, I mean, wild. It was, it was kind of like some of the scenes that you would see in. Um, it reminded me a little bit of True Romance when Patricia Arquette finally attacks with the corkscrew. She goes after James Gandolfini after she comes out of the bathroom, you know, and they jump into that like really heavy techno music as she's just pounding on him and then, you know, beats him with the gun and she, she kind of goes wild after, you know, taking his abuse for. God, who knows how long it really was in real time. And it had that feel because he kind of jumps on her and he just starts, he loses, just stabbing her, stabbing her. And that poor little girl comes down the stairs. <laughs> and he just looks at her like, got to tie up some loose ends. But then you're always like, throughout this movie, you're not, you're like not far away from like kind of being undercut by comedy. Because like yeah. that, that whole scene is like, it's kind of the punchline on the end is like earlier in the conversation between like, uh, the the uh, the young girl she's like bitching and moaning at a uh, mad dog about her friend like calling up about some cupcakes 
And the scene ends with the, the friend's like voicemail going like, Hey, I'm never gonna work with you again. A cupcake's gonna be crap. And like and it's just like then you're like, Oh, I I know oh. I know where I am with this movie and like mm-hmm. it, it is this thing that like it's almost like I don't know, like they had cue cards with all these different scenes and ideas, and just kind of shuffled them a bit because they're like, in this one, we're gonna go black and white. We're not gonna explain it. We're not gonna tell you why. This scene's gonna be like really bright colors. We're gonna do this like weird kind of effects when like Willem Dafoe's in the bathroom with that blue light, and it's kind of like I don't know. You see this almost like transformation and that's kind of the moment that we see that like mad dog is true like truly mad because it's like not like up until that point like he's like staying coke like he's not like he's not that i don't know he's not that mad like (laughs) (laughs) but then that moment you're like okay this this is going this is going to go somewhere weird and then he's probably yeah the the most fleshed out character in that he kind of like has these has this has this weird journey and like uh yeah paul schrader said that, that there's like 15 pages of the original script of this that just straight away when he knew the budget is like they've got to go because it was like there was like more that would happen after mad dog's like death yeah we'll get to that mad dog eventually dies and kind of like i don't know like an anticlimactic way yeah we felt the same we felt that the one problem with this movie we, we had was that you had these two amazing characters. You have Nicolas Cage's character and you have Willem Dafoe. And then you have, for some reason, Diesel. Like, if we always said, what, Vin Diesel wasn't around, wasn't available for this movie? Because he was, I get they want to have a team of three. He was pointless. He was an absolute pointless. We said that, you know, if they, the character of Diesel should have been more like Donnie in The Big Lebowski. He's that side character who has, you know, he's a little comedic, but doesn't do a whole lot. The fact that Diesel is who brings about what you're speaking of and it's not Nick's character or that there's not that moment like you get in heat between Pacino and De Niro when they're finally on screen for the first time, you have that amazing conversation mm-hmm. between the two gentlemen. There's not that moment in this movie. You don't get Nick and Willem like you do in Wild at Heart, which is a very short section because we just covered that in our next coming up podcast. They're only in that movie together maybe 15 minutes at the best, and they still have better scenes, and they get to really have together as a twosome in this movie outside of Nick spraying uh, mustard all over the bare chest of Mr. Willem Dafoe. But that's where we kind of felt that this movie fell. Just a little bit is that Diesel is not a well-developed character, or the guy who plays him. Again, you know, he's, he, I mean, look, he's on screen with these two men. So who am I to complain? I'm never going to be on screen with these two guys. Um, but I don't know. You know, maybe it was a favor Paul owed him or something, but he just doesn't fit the role. He yeah. is a waste of space. And unfortunately, he's given some good moments with Nick that you don't get back. And, you know, what you're, you know, what you're alluding to, that he is the person, it doesn't feel right because it's, you know, Nick – Nick is the one who vouches for Mad Dog. Nick is the one who releases Mad Dog. Nick is now the one who should be responsible for what Mad Dog is and does. Not Diesel. This this guy shouldn't be. He should have been killed off early, but I'll let Matt finish. Well, the thing yeah. is with the character of Diesel, like he doesn't really have an arc. Like, no. And like, there's no character development of him. There's no like, I don't know. I found like, I was warming to him. And then there's the scene like, which I think in itself in this kind of bizarre movie it's like a moment of like sweetness is when this like kind of like 
I don't really like you could tell she's like a nice like kind of homely like woman is talking to him about Nick Drake and they've kind of been talking like talking at the bar and like he just flips out on her and like I don't know like at that moment I was like you know what fuck you Diesel <laughs> yeah. you know I mean? like yeah. I've, I've, I'm well, he's with a prostitute yeah, yeah. It's that whole prostitute scene going on, which the other two moments of those scenes with the other two guys are very comedic. You know, you get um, Nick does his whole Humphrey Bogart thing and the girl is just like, he's trying to take her to, to Paris. She's like, I just want to suck your dick. Like, I don't want to go to Paris. I just want to come here and do what I'm, you're paying me to do. <laughs> Meanwhile, we'll pull up the phone. We won't believe that he wasn't given a prostitute. We believe he was just given a masseuse who had the worst job ever, giving him that begrudging hand job at the end that he just cannot ejaculate to. <laughs> and then Diesel just seems to like have the nicest of the two prostitutes. She actually seems to care, and then he just loses his mind, which is so against what's going on in the movie because the other two are kind of comedic, kind of backstory scenes. You know, you kind of get a little bit more about who those two characters are, but I think they try to give Diesel that the depth and he's just not the actor to do it that just it's in my opinion yeah. i haven't seen him other stuff but in that scene he doesn't have the you know we don't we don't have any there's no there's no switch flipping where you go he's from being you know vin diesel tough guy to suddenly being like oh i have a soft side to me there's just you don't feel that at all he just no. just comes across as like this big douchey guy who lifts weights a lot and then just because of all the steroids he shoots now he has this anger issue all the time well it's Thanks. like it's like he watched kiss of death I'm, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just ape Nick's performance from that, like, and like, just kind of like, like I don't know, it's, it's very, it's it, like, he, yeah, as a character and like as an actor, unfortunately, like, um, Christopher Michael Cook let, like, lets the picture down, and like, he, he does have, I don't know, there are moments like, just from like physical acting, like, there's uh, a moment like to the kind of end of the film where he like comes out of the grocery store and like i don't know like when he like pulls out that gun and like it's like there's a, like an ongoing joke on this podcast about nick cage running but this guy is great at running i i, I personally think nick cage cannot run like <laughs> a lot of the time he looks like his knees hurt like whereas <laughs> like christopher matthew cook like excellent runner and like when he just kind of comes out of that store shoots that like shoots that um police officer and then just like that like darts out of there it's like right he's got like he's getting the knees up high like and it, i don't know it had like a, a comedic a, a, yeah like a comedic edge to it and then like i don't know um apart from like that moment maybe i don't know yeah no i don't like and even like the whole conversation with him and mad dog in the car it's like well, I'm not, I like, I'm not kind of be, like believing you, and like, I'm not sure if I like saw it wrong or wasn't paying attention. But like, is it an accident that he shoots Mad Dog, or is it on purpose? <sighs> I think it's on purpose. I, I feel like that he kills Mad Dog, I, in in my opinion, uh, when watching it. Um, it's kind of odd because you know, Mad Dog is meant to be this the. The, the mad dog he's the loose cannon yet you you have diesel here who is this underdeveloped character that personally the actor can't act so he can't carry it so like if he's not being told what to do 100 percent 
he's not going to develop anything out of whatever on his own. He's not like Will, uh, Willem or Nick where they can do what they got to do regardless of they could. We've seen them go through both of them go through films where we know that the writer or director could be sleeping through it and they're still going to pull a performance oh, yeah. out of it where, yeah. And it, it is, it goes back to like, he is, he's like this loose cannon, second loose cannon, third wheel to them especially even with the end with that part there when he comes out of the store and he just yanks out that hand cannon and blasts the first cop and his body goes flying like six feet back into a car and it's just like even nick like then was trying to like cool the situation they could have probably got away oh, if yeah. it was for him acting just completely ridiculous out of nowhere and it's because he can't keep his cool he couldn't keep his cool when he was with uh the the girl in the bar and he can't keep his cool now like the whole time when it shows him in the store he's losing it like he's like he's not meant to he's not meant to be a criminal at the caliber of these two other criminals who are just really holding their shit down um he is in my opinion is the the He's what sets them up to failure. He's their Achilles heel that completely just destroys them. Well, he's not, like he's not enough oh, of a separate character. Do you know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like he's got traits of like he's kind of like uh, between a rock and a hard place. He's like mm-hmm. I don't know. Like as you said, if he had played like like Nick Cage plays the straight man, like quote unquote, but is a bit more like he's got eccentricities and stuff like that. Whereas like. The character of Diesel is just like I'm gonna have a little pinch of that mad dog energy and like I don't know once in a movie like accidentally shooting someone like is a great payoff. Do you know what I mean? Like that scene when Mad Dog like um, shoots the guy that they're supposed to extort to like get a yeah yeah like take to a hostage situation is great but then when he gets shot like kind of accidentally on purpose like that kind of like i don't know it kind of felt a bit like oh do you know what i mean like we've all seen pulp fiction one time one time accidental shooting please like one time kind of like gun goes off maybe before you meant it to or anything like that like oh i shot marvin in the face (laughs) i feel like um I feel like there's animosity between Diesel and Mad Dog. Mm-hmm. I feel like this goes back to their jailhouse days. And I feel what makes this missing and why we don't feel like, you know, I feel like when he shoots him at the end, he means to shoot him. I think there's some stuff that's gone back and you know Diesel is, or not Diesel, Mad Dog is begging Diesel to be friends. He wants to be friends with him. Um, but you can tell they just, he's just not on board with that. But because we have no backstory for Diesel or why these two are the way they are, we're just kind of, it's almost like we've come into an argument that we have no context for. So, you know, it's like we've walked into a situation where we see two people are having a problem, but we don't know why they're having a problem. We don't know any of the, you know, the intricacies that brought these two like this. And so without that, it just feels like Diesel's just an asshole to him and Mad Dog just wants to be like the younger brother who wants some kind of um, well, validation from him. Well, could, could we like almost look at it that like it's a weird like, love triangle that we're kind of kept in in this kind of like there's these three gangsters in this like i love yeah obviously like uh an unconventional love triangle triangle in that it's not like it's not i don't know it's not sexual or anything even though like like again that that mustard and ketchup scene is a very homoerotic <laughs> scene is 
like it's it's this thing that they're both vying for Troy's attention and like affection and like Diesel's not getting it so he like is jealous of Mad Dog because Mad Dog is known to like fly off the handle do like kind of like but time and time again Troy's like but you're still coming on the job. And it's almost like that middle child syndrome that like, oh, the youngest, like, no matter what I do, I'm always getting like straight A's. You will always go, but the youngest is so lovely and is our baby. And it's like, like, if that is kind of the subtext, I would have loved to have seen that like fleshed out more as opposed to like, I don't know, like, I think a criticism of this movie that could be leveled at it like is it is a lot of style over substance at sometimes like and that's not to say that it's not like it's it, it has it's like devoid of merits because it's not because like the style it gives you is like a versace suit do you know what i mean like uh, but where sometimes like the substance is like a mcdonald's as opposed to like <laughs> a michelin star like uh mill so um yeah, like what like would you say, Scott, is like some of like some of the scenes that really like whether it's visually or kind of like the the tone of them that re- really like stand out to you? It's funny, it's not gonna be a it's, it's gonna be a funny scene and it's something that Matt and I talked about and it's one of our favorites. It's our favorite line in the movie. And mm-hmm. it happens to be when they actually go to in the second, you know, when they're extorting, uh they're gonna extort uh, that guy for this other gangster that they meet in that very weird uh, restaurant in Cleveland. That's an old bank vault. Um, mm-hmm. When they're there and there's, they, they take the nanny upstairs to get the baby and they're there and it, the baby's crying. And so Nick looks at the lady and says, you know, you know, can you take care of this? You're better at this than I am, you know, trying to quiet her down. And he goes, where's that thing you need to put in the baby's hand? What is it called? And Mad Dog goes, a dick? And he just looks and he goes, nope. <laughs> Our, and then, you know, from there, he turns around, he shoots the guy. And when he goes in, it's one of the greatest scenes that the way that Defoe and the Nick both are able to handle that moment together is fantastic. The way that, it, like you said, he's like a childlike. And he really is in that moment. He's like a dick. Like, Matt and I are like, that's how he probably handles all the problems he's had in prison. He just <laughs> orally rapes somebody to shut them up and get his way. And he thought, to shut this baby up, I guess I do the same thing I've only ever known how to do. And it's just, and Nick is like, no, no, that's not, no, we don't, we don't put dicks in babies' mouths. That's not something we're going to do here. And it's just that moment that just sticks. It's like my favorite moment in the movie because like you said, it's that, it's tense, but it has a Coen Brothers feel to it because it's yeah. such a fuck up, such a fuck up. I mean, literally the guy opens the door, turns around, doesn't even ask. I mean, the guy goes, you guys fucked up. Don't even know who he is. And Defoe is just like, I don't care. Bam. Bam. Blows his, blows his head off. And there goes the two million, whatever the money they were all going to try to do in a heartbeat. It's over with. And I think it's because he screwed up. That's why Diesel's pissed at him. And kind of like what you were saying, I think the reason Diesel's also pissed is Troy, if you remember, says that Mad Dog saved his life in prison. Mad Dog mm-hmm. shanks a guy in the shower that was trying to kill Troy. And so for whatever reason, Troy and Mad Dog were always going to be connected to the hip because Troy feels he owes him a debt, which is why the ending bothers me is that if anyone's going to put down the dog, it should have been Troy. It's his responsibility. It's his, 
you know, if if Chewbacca suddenly got went crazy, you know, or I'm sorry, if Han Solo ever went crazy because Chewbacca owed him a debt, Chewbacca should be the one to put him down. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you don't you don't you don't send Leia off. Do it. You send Chewbacca to handle it because that's your responsibility now. He's now your life responsibility. So, but for me, it's the baby kidnapping scene where he tells him <laughs> tells him no, we're not putting a dick in the baby's mouth to keep it quiet. Yeah. Yeah. What about? Uh... What about you, Matt? What's like the the? Is there a specific scene that like that, that yeah, jumps out to you? Here. Cheers! Cheers! There we go. It's past noon. <laughs> so, my uh, my first favorite scene of the film is the in uh whole intro with Willem. It is fucking bonkers and fantastic, and the way that Paul just handles all these little political undertones with the talking about gun violence, even then with them, like <laughs> the Chevron card, like this family, you know, is a very low uh, middle-class family, possibly just, you know, um, out of work, you know, collecting um, either unemployment or disability or something like that. So he's like throwing in all these tiny little things. And then that amazing conversation with uh, on the phone, which my favorite part from that is the fact that Willem wants to continue to talk to him. He wants him to call him back. And it's like, this is fucking awesome. I want to know more as to why the <laughs> mad dog wanted to keep this conversation going. And only does he get pissed when he makes that stab back at him. Like, Oh, well, why do you have a, you can't like this still goes on. Well, just like, all right, well that turn comes there and he's like, well, fuck you. You call people during dinner time, motherfucker. And it's fucking fantastic. And then it does, it dives straight into extreme gruesome violence. Um, against a child which is we're not condoning but this shit happens in the world as we know um and yes it's handled in a very dark comedic part of the film um but it's it's still holding it to this factor of like reality almost mm -hmm. at the same time um even with like in that scene with the whole colors and everything like that, it reminds me a lot of um, Natural Born Killers where they finally uh, get fed up and kill uh, Rodney Dangerfield, um, uh, Julia, uh, Julia's uh, father in the movie. Yeah. With. And th that's what it reminded me of then when it's like he just snapped. Like he's had enough and now he's going to fucking kill everybody. In that film, of course, it's she's been abused by this fucking piece yeah. of shit her whole life and now she's finally got the power to do it with him um my my other favorite scene is of course when they uh do the robbery dressed up as cops it is fantastic um the oh i got something you, you hear that he got something on his gucci yeah yeah he's got oh, the top and the, so good the one thing, well, even, the one thing the best part is that car that car oh, they, they they taped it themselves they like the lines it. are yeah. all over the place it's the, it's the worst but that scene like i don't know especially now obviously we're speaking like um like mid-june and everything that's going on over in the states like it 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 it, 
it kind of feels a bit icky like that scene like especially like and like again again it feels like paul schrader even at that time 2016 knows what he like he's got to know what he's doing with that scene and is is playing upon like obviously this this systemic thing of 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 racism in the u.s and it's it's free white men like do you know what i mean and it is and it looks like a classic stop and search and it's like and it is it is the it like the reason he's pulled out of the car is the same bullshit that people are killed for like do you know what i mean and it's like like watching that like now like i watched this like today and like i was like whoa like that scene just like really and 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 again like matt like it's i don't know i don't know if it's in context of the character but like the character of mad dog like dropping the end bomb like throughout the movie is just it's it's jarring and it's kind of like polarizing because you're like whoa like i don't i don't i i i don't know how to how to feel about that obviously like yeah i've before we start recording, we were talking about like Quentin Tarantino, obviously, for good or bad. Like he's he's had his detractors, but he's quite liberal with the use of that that word. But there is argument sometimes it is like it is like from characters of color, whereas like this is a guy, and like a lot of the time, yeah, like the moments he says it are kind of weirdly like out. Like I know the first time especially it's really out of context and like i guess that is just paul schrader pushing our buttons right like and i think that's what like this is an this movie is an exercise in what do you yeah. guys make to that point he he may be doing that for you know when we first saw it obviously because we we did this back in april so obviously two months almost before the events that have happened over here and which uh you know you guys are doing on the other side of the pond you know you've um have also joined in is you know because it's not just systemic racism in america it's it seems to be global it just happens to be we have such a big country and we become so volatile about it and showing it that other countries are now saying you know this is happening here too we need to stand up and unfortunately you guys have that second amendment that people hold so dearly to their heart have policemen who have served in the military like probably suffering with ptsd coming home and the only way they know how to deal with like even the most minor of conflicts is to defend their lives at whether whether it's right or wrong and as we're seeing time and time again it is wrong like yeah right. sorry sorry well, that's what makes this no that's what makes this movie so good is one when, when defoe is saying it it feels like he is showing what it's like to be the baby boomers what that baby boomer lifestyle is is that the n-word is just something commonplace when you're in the when you're in the comforts of other white people, you know, I always remember before these times happened, but when you knew someone was going to say something racist, they would always do this first. If you can't, I've, I've, this is probably audio, but if you can't tell, I'm turning my head, they look around before they would say something off colored. Um, and it feels like he felt very safe in the comforts of those two men that he could just throw this out and no one's ever going to call him on it. And then when they do the arrest, now that we know we look at it in this expression, these contexts, but three, I mean, that car, as much as we laugh at it, it does have quite a powerful message. That car doesn't look like a fucking police car outside that they bought it from an auction. The paint job is terrible. It's like some kind of gas station lights that they bought and put on top like from a Walmart. And when they pull him over, the reason that he pulls over is because he sees white guys. And he's like, this is just what America is. He knows that, fuck, I got to pull over. 
even though to the, the trained eye, you should be like, that's not a cop. Even when they show up, you should be like, these guys don't look like cops. When they get in the car, he still feels it. When he goes in the house, even the people in the street don't feel like they're cops, but there's that, there's that overhanging thing where they don't think they're cops, but because of how the police in America, a lot of times patrol, especially neighborhoods of color with this almost authoritarian 1984 militaristic kind of way, in their heads, they're like, what if it is cops? Because they know if, if they piss off three cops, three cops become 300 cops like that. And they just roll into their neighborhood without provocation. And so when you see this and even Mad Dog kind of plays into it. He goes, he wants to go outside and start killing people. While it's a humorous line, if you watch the movie pre-2020, post-2020, post-May 25th, 2020, that line holds a lot more power. You go, he's a man. I don't know if Paul Schrader was in the scene in the future or doesn't realize what he wrote, but yeah, you look at that scene now. Whew, he I mean, he just wants to start shooting black people outside because they're throwing stuff at the windows. Like, yeah, it's not too far off from what the cops would do. You know, it's like it's yeah. kind of a scary, almost looking at him in a mirror, and it you know has a lot more power now. And we probably would dissect this show, this movie differently if we did it yeah, yeah, yeah. after the events. Well, yeah. there's that thing as well that obviously, like, it could be argued that like it's an accident that like Mad Mad Dog's character just like given like any situation like whether it's a mother and daughter or like it happens to be like they're in like a neighborhood like a black neighborhood that like no matter any time of like hit when his blood gets pumping he's like oh gets excited let me kill someone but with like looking at it in the context and even in 2016 so like like obviously the like the black lives matter movement was still very much like was alive and kicking like then obviously this was post yeah th this would have come out post Trayvon Martin at least yeah. like yep. and like obviously it could like it would have and as as, as uh, yeah as we've like touched on this has been a problem like around the the world for years like yeah. so and like knowing the kind of opening to this and the kind of subliminal and subtle political like jabs that Paul Schrader is taking I personally wouldn't put it past him to like kind of do that whether it's like in a I don't know and it's a it's a ballsy move and this like that's the thing this movie is ballsy as well mm -hmm. and I don't think we've discussed like it's very rare that our protagonists in movies are highly unlikable guys really do you know what I mean they are yeah. they are three pieces of shit basically yeah and you go through and it's like I don't know like weirdly like Troy you like like and even even Mad Dog to a degree and like I think that is like a, a weird a weird kind of position to put like the audience in like like when you're rooting for a guy to kill uh, like a woman and her child you're like i'm on his side like how has how has the filmmaker got me on the side of this guy do you know what i mean and it's like by doing that you almost it puts you in the mind frame of troy in that like oh like i don't know like he ropedopes you doesn't he paul schrader kind of ropedopes you into being yeah. in mad dog's corner and kind of going along with what these guys are doing and it's just like repugnant thing after repugnant thing. It's like 
shaking down yeah shaking down a black guy for like it just turns out to be cocaine they think they're going to get like this big payoff of loads of money and it's just cocaine and then they probably stoop to one of like the lowest of the lows which is like kidnapping a baby and it's like what the fuck like and like yeah i don't know well the worst thing about that is we never know what happens to that baby yeah yeah. Like we we have no context to see if that lady leaves, but to jump back to the uh, the tones of what's currently this the climate situation, the end of the movie says it if it if they're not talking about it in that scene, Paul Schrader is definitely talking about it in Troy's what we believe to be he's already dead, but it's on his way out, comatose dream of how he likes to see himself die as Humphrey Bogart. When those cops pull them over and he's the one who stole the car, he's in the front seat, he's got the gun, and those two poor black people are sitting in the back. When he gets out, the first thing that the cops do is shoot up that car and kill those black people. Yeah. We thought it was comedic at the time because we were like, it's a dream. We're like, who are these cops? They can't hit him. He's right there and they end up killing them. But now, I mean, obviously our podcast probably isn't going to hold up well because that because here we are thinking it's a funny scene, you know, not in context. And now yeah, you look back yeah. at it with these events and you, and you start to realize, like, Jesus, man, I think Paul was trying to abs- absolutely, in a weird scene, make a point that police officers pulled over a white male. He just got out of the car with a gun. And the first thing they think to do is shoot the black people in the backseat. Yeah. And they're the only people that hit me. It took forever to hit fucking Nick's character. Mm-hmm. They light them up. They just shoot them as if you know, they're coming out with sawed off rifles and they're, you know, going to attack them. And these poor black folks are, they're elderly first off and they're just sitting in the backseat of their car they've been hijacked in. Well, I, 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 it just dawned to me when you mentioned like that, this is, this has got to be a dream sequence, even the way it cuts into it of like this kind of like, it's like letterboxed out, isn't it? And that, that you see this diner and, um, and, and then it happens to be that the, the, the guy is a, a a priest, like a reverend, and like his wife. And then we get this like gospel music playing, obviously like allusions to to like heaven and stuff like that. Obviously, where Troy would hope he's going in some roundabout way. But then we get this kind of like and it, it like not only with the the Willem Dafoe connection to Lynch, we get this sequence that like just feels like a playbook out of the lynch playbook in this like especially like um, yeah if you've ever seen um Mo- uh, not mulholland drive uh lost highway that mm. that use of seeing like the 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 two yellow strips on the road yeah. and paul schrader like really plays into that and like the fog keeps coming in and it's like oh like this is and this movie has it all the way throughout that it's like you feel like you're kind of like flipping channels between your favorite directors right like it's like oh like i've just turned over to a tarantino movie like i've just turned over to like tony's like you were saying you've just turned over to uh true romance or like oh now i've turned over the channel and i'm watching like and it's like borrowing from all these places and doing like really interesting things with them and like as you said yeah that 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 moment like in today's context is it's heartbreaking and like I don't know, like Cage's Cage's performance in that and yeah, and like this is this 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 is a not a rare occurrence that something a, a, a guest comes with a point that like obviously because they've sat with the movie a lot longer than I have, is that uh a point where I'm like, of course it's that because 
the thing that jarred to me straight away when uh, that scene came about was his anthill mob style voice, like the Humphrey Bogart, like, hey, see, like, I'm going to take your car, see? <laughs> the, the big sleep, yeah. <laughs> the big sleep voice comes in hard. Well, if he didn't, if it's not a dream sequence, then we all, we said in our podcast, then how the hell did he get out of handcuffs? He's being dragged behind a car. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the two cops are dragging him behind the car for his involvement in killing some cops and beating that lady cop up. So there's no, he escapes. And if he did, then it's a huge plot hole. So we kind of came up with the idea that it has to be a dream sequence of him, you know, whether he's in a coma and about to die or it's his last moments of how he's now yeah, yeah. dreaming well, as he's dying. It's his Jacob's ladder moment. Like, yeah. <laughs> like um, yeah. So, and even then, just to add on that too, um, a little bit more, like that was that was another perfect example of yes, like um, this is a these characters are criminals. They committed a criminal act, but what do they do to him? First of all, they they go there, they kill two unarmed uh, black men and his wife in the backseat of the car, and then they take Nick away to get revenge on him for what he has done through acts of police brutality. So it's not, a, a, regardless if he's a, a criminal and we see him commit these acts and know he is guilty, he still needs to be held to the standard of the law. Yeah. And instead they take it into their own hands. So it's another, yeah, another great commentary by Paul about um, the current situation in America with police, you know, this, from them uh, as criminals using it to their advantage to try to rob someone all the way to seeing it come around and bite these criminals in the ass in the later end of the film to show like that it's coming full circle on them. There's anything in like the bulk of the the movie that like kind of we haven't covered or like touch yeah that like uh, mm. I don't I don't know. And you've touched the racism bit. We've talked how Diesel's a terrible actor. Uh we talked how Nicholas Cage said no, no penises in kids' mouths. Um, we pretty, and then, then the opening scene, we pretty much, I mean, unless you want to talk about the ridiculousness of the bank that they have to go eat at every time they have to get a job, which we talked about was completely ridiculous. But I, I, I kind of like that. I kind of uh, stylistically and like, well, uh, it's it truly is. It, it's it's. I believe it kind of comes from because. Uh, like for Guy Ritchie, he has very stylistic crime stuff. And a lot of the UK stuff is very uh, stylistic. And I feel like sometimes, you know, uh, American crime is a little more gritty, if that makes sense. You know, it's, there's more gritty locations, more grit. And I felt like he was definitely reaching for more of a UK crime movie with the stylistic of being inside an open, you know, vault. Like if it was a Guy Ritchie movie, I wouldn't have questioned it for a second. Because it's these these three massive people, you know, having this dinner about kidnapping a kid inside of a bank vault, you're kind of like, oh, okay, okay, this is different. Well, I think that plays into that whole thing of like I was mentioning earlier that it feels like Paul Schrader is very much just borrowing little bits from directors he likes, and like he he, he I think he was trying to figure out what does a crime film look like in 2016. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, obviously, like, he's worked with Martin Scorsese, who, like, kind of, like, has time and time again kind of, like, tick, ticked it off, like, yeah. re reinvented it, whether it's Goodfellas, Casino, or, or even The Departed, like, kind of showing, like, both sides of the coin. 
and like it's like right well i've got a i've got to really show this other side to it and like i don't know if, i think yeah to, to like wind things down like i think it, it, it should go without saying because obviously this podcast is about nicholas cage and like there is like a massive point to this that like he gave up some of his fee for this movie so paul schrader could hire willem dafoe which like he paid, me, he paid for william yeah. to be there which time and time again shows me that like despite all this thing of like he has made choices for money but at the same time he has turned down roles that could have got him a lot of money to do stuff that has like heart to it and like the the key one being and like i think like for me is up there as like one of the truest Nicolas Cage performances is Joe. Like, just covered that in our podcast. Yeah. If you hadn't said it, we were gonna probably say yeah, it because he yeah, I was just going there. Yep. He was supposed to be in Expendables three. He said no to that. He was supposed to be in The Killing Fields. He said no to that, and he did yep. Joe. And we feel, since you just brought up, we feel that Joe and Mandy are. They're, they're connected. We feel that Joe is what Red became after he leaves. Because he's up there, you know, he's, he's an arborist. He's cutting down trees. He's helping. But once he loses everything, now he's down in Texas. He's killing trees. He's barely keeping it together. We feel like <laughs> Joe and Joe become, Red becomes Joe after he leaves uh, the, the great Northwest, after he loses Mandy and gets revenge. Well, that's that's... Why violent tendencies of, from all the damage that he was. Yeah. And watching his uh, beloved die and go through uh, his stages of hell on his acid trip of revenge. I mean, in the movie, he's a big, uh, his really only good friend is Bill Dukes, who's a black man. In the movie, Joe, the only people he really seems to really get along with is the crew that he has on the tree killing service, yeah. which are all black gentlemen. And even that sheriff is always on his side, even though he's always beating up with his deputies. He's always so. It, there's a lot of we, we, there's a lot of parallels to the two of them. We like to think it's a little prequel sequel, Star Wars style, when they came up with came up with the middle ones first and then brought it back to the beginning. Well, that yeah, that 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 that, that is something I, I, I'd never looked at. But like Joe, to me, like is a like a fantastic movie, and like as I said, like it sh it shows very much that like he cares, he cares about acting, and like. I think anyone like, and I, I sometimes, I'm not sure about you guys, I find it quite quite hard sometimes to sell a Nicolas Cage podcast to people, like, because I'm like, it's not, I, I don't know, it's not just like me, like, kind of gushing about Nicolas Cage, it's like, and it is, I think, if you give him a chance, like, he's got something for everyone, like, and he will, he will, like, deliver, and like, even the movies that aren't that great, he will find interesting stuff in there, which is always like, always a treat. Like I don't like, yeah, he'll pull something out. There'll be one scene. There might be a moment within a scene. There might be a line. There might be like a deliverance of a word within a line or a look, and you're like, he did something interesting there, which could have been completely different it, like and it goes all the way back through his career and like for me like joe is like i don't currently is like up there as like possibly my favorite nick cage performance just in the way that like it's it's enough it's almost like especially around that time it's 
a refreshing take on like a, I don't it for me it's it's his Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, it should have been it, Joe is should have been Nick's revival of coming back and it got overlooked by a lot of people. Um and it, now that's like we just finished up last night and I don't think we could have drilled in our last 10 minutes section was just like literally us just like go watch this, go watch this, go watch this. Like because it, it's sad to see like such a great performance and then know like this just was overlooked not only um, by viewers. Um, it was given great uh, critical praise, but then completely snubbed out of awards, which gary nick ty they all could have got awards for this movie or at least nominations and recognition for what they uh did outside of just being written into uh published uh critiques of the film and given praise during that they needed to get uh pushed around more uh like festival circuits and winning awards there all the way up to the oscars for that film because it's fantastic yeah so Let's bring this back to Doggy Dogs. Obviously, that, <laughs> yeah. is, that, that is where we start this, this about journey, <laughs> and this is where we will end that journey. Um, like, would you guys recommend that people watch this movie first of all? I would. We always, even if it's a the only movie we've ever not recommended is Rage. We think that's a steaming pile of shit, and we would never recommend it to anybody. It has got the lowest rating ever. We have it's a zero for us. We can't stand it. It's terrible. Even Nick's performance is garbage. This movie, though, I think just for the performances, especially, I mean, I know it's Nick Cage's podcast, but Willem Dafoe in this is unreal. Uh, some of the subject matter that we go over, that the movie goes over, as we've kind of talked about, is really worth it now, especially in 2020. If you see it now in 2020, you're going to have a different take on the movie than we watched it in 2020, but we watched it back in February or March. So two months in advance of all the stuff that would eventually come out, now you look back and you go, holy, wow. Like, there's a lot. It was a deeper and was always there. But again, we were just blinded to it. We just, you know, we, we didn't see what was right in front of us. And now that we watch this movie, you can really see it. I mean, it's, it's got great moments. It's got funny moments. It's not the greatest movie you'll ever see. But I think it's definitely worthy of, of a viewing just to see the craziness that is Willem Dafoe and Nick Cage on screen together for the first time in what I think it was like 26 years since they did uh, Wild at Heart in 1990. So we, I would at least say, you got you got to check out just for that alone. Yeah. I agree with you. It, it, it needs to be watched, especially right now um, with the current situation that's going on. It is a great, um, just subtle uh, film with a lot of political undertones that are relevant to exactly what yeah. is happening right now um and if you get a chance to break away and need to separate from it but still want to get some knowledge from very smart people like paul um that are going to show you um in a great film how um the abuse of power is used and how both criminals in this film take advantage of it and the police take advantage of it and it's, it's a a great great um just it's a great uh 
Well, it tiptoes the line <laughs> bit... of being massively like un PC, but at the yeah. same time having a lot to say about like about 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 big issues and like kind of does it with this snarky sneering attitude, but you're still gonna like step away from it and be like, do you know what? I've 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 kind of like if if and. As always, a movie is like you take out of a movie personally what 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 you bring to it, and like that's what makes it so interesting. You guys watch this movie in March 2020. I watched this movie in June 2020, and I got something out of it, and it's something that I took to it because that's something that is like very much on my mind and is like a I. Th- like a subject that like is in is in the public consciousness and like seeing something however small it is depicted on screen is just i don't know like you 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 can't help but think of what is going on in the world and to your point like just totally like at the left turn your point to willem defoe i think arguably that like he is Cage's only contemporary in like in this modern age. We said the same exact thing on our podcast about this movie. Exact same thing. Like uh, it almost made us start to think about maybe doing a Willem Dafoe podcast just because the two of them are. I um, mean, you know, you talk about the Lighthouse and other movies he's been. He's just he he's not afraid to take chances, just like Nicolas Cage. And the two of them, I wish they were more movies together. Which is why I said to you earlier, my disappointment of this movie is that they don't get some meteor scenes together, yeah. Yeah. you know, to really to bounce off each other. Well, there's that thing as well that uh, Nick Cage was originally offered the role of Norman Osborn in Spider Man. And it's like, I can't help but think, like, it's kind of cropped up a lot on this podcast, these parallel universes we could have been living in, and like these Cage movies we could have got, whether it's Crank or Spider Man, like. Or, or yeah, like unrealized projects like Twisted Metal with uh, Cage as Sweet Tooth. It's like that would have been amazing. But like, I'm glad we've got that out. Yeah, the oh, the, the number one. Yeah, but I'm glad we got like that the output that we've got. Like, and it all makes for I don't know an amazing tapestry of a career. But before I let you guys go, obviously finish off it's kind of a dumb scoring system but once i cor- like collect all the data i will correlate it and kind of try and figure out what it tells me about nicholas cage's career and those three questions are, are ask you both i'll go to you first matt is does nick cage have bad hair in this movie yes <laughs> He definitely does. There, um, actually, uh, I took a great screenshot earlier of a scene of him looking very crazy and just having s- just slightly off crazy hair. Um, <laughs> it's very subtle craziness hair in this film, but it's there. So, um, Scott, do you agree to this point, or, or would you like to object? <laughs> You're talking about the guy who's bald. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, he has had some roles with some sweet hair, but this this is uh, it's definitely some messy hair. It's definitely uh, some like wind blown, teased out hair. Like, I thought he's got some construction credit going through. Um, which grows every time. 
Well, it's got a thing as well that it's a very like just just for men hair. He's yeah. got going on. He's got this like very very like ju- like it looks it looks suspiciously black, which yeah. is like always. Oh yeah, does. yeah. We it's, it's not that it's not natural. It's that's not, not a natural hair color. <laughs> yeah, he's it's it's like he's uh just you could tell it's like almost like he's just like frantically always like combing his hand through his hair to like try to calm himself down or like when mad dog's being a fucking psychopath and diesel's just like <laughs> on roids he's like gotta just like mess with his hair in the background <laughs> to like calm down it's like a tick <laughs> well i'll i'll go to you matt again for the for the second question which is does cage do anything crazy with his voice in this movie he's obviously known for going to strange and wonderful places with his uh voice <laughs> He goes to amazing, wonderful places uh, with a great impression of Humphrey Bogart. Um, and specifically before um, getting ready to record today, I um, I actually watched, I was wa- simultaneously going back and forth between clips of The Big Sleep and clips of him just in the Humphrey Bogart dream sequence um, to see how close he was getting it. And it is fucking on point <laughs> amazing and um what about you scott like yeah do you again do you agree or do you do you uh... i have to i have to agree uh for better or worse um <laughs> to me <clears throat> when we talked about this uh i felt it kind of deteared from the movie a bit i didn't it didn't make sense why you know we got that one moment where he talks to the girl and he's trying to do the humpy booger thing and she's like just you know just let's just do what we're here to do mm-hmm. and it kind of felt out of place and then he eventually does it at the end so he does it and that's the whole reason he took that role instead of the default role um i'm not sure i like it uh it may be spot on but to me it was a bit of an attractor in the movie and um maybe one of the reasons that it, people who see it and don't critically look at it like we do could be like what the fuck's going on like yeah. why you know they could make fun of it without knowing the context and backstory of why he decided to use it well, I think one of the downfalls of this movie is it's one of those ones that is sold by a trailer that makes it out to possibly be something that isn't delivered in the end product. And uh, I think that is the problem a lot of the time with marketing is movies like look a certain way and like are cut in this way that like you would expect this to be bang, 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 bang. Like this happens, this happens. Where it's like it's the pace of it is like, as much as like a lot happens, like there are some slow moments in it, which like yeah. are quite are quite interesting. Um, but one thing that like a lot of people like for good or bad, and a lot of time people are looking at it for bad. And I'll go to you, Scott, first on this one: is do we get a Nicolas Cage freak out in this movie? We do. So much like what you do, we have what we call we we try to as we watch it. I take notes of the Cage rages as we as everyone calls them. <laughs> And I believe we found there was one. I'm trying to remember exactly what scene it was in, but he does have one cage rage. And it's hard to remember them because it's really Willem Dafoe who's fucking raging the entire movie. Like yeah. He literally is losing his mind the entire fucking movie. And Nicholas is more of the, you know, the centric character. He's got his shit together. But he does have one. And I meant to go back and look at to see where it was. But I know when we did our notes and we kept uh, our score, Nicholas had at least one moment where he went to cage rage yeah he has the 
one cage rage and i'm trying to think too the same uh same which scene it was where he does go completely bonkers um it's either possibly when he like he he eventually shoots the the mother of the baby right like it, it could possibly be that moment he he, he loses it. he's like don't make me shoot you lady or even I, or, or or even being dragged behind that car like, or like yeah. that kind of moment like you definitely get some rage when he punches that woman in the face. And yeah. weirdly to say, not the first time in the Nicolas Cage filmography we have seen him be violent towards women. No. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because it's it, it's just one of those scenes you don't expect to happen. You don't expect him to punch a lady. Uh, I expect the photo to blow that guy away with a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> like... it, it reminds <laughs> me of the opening of uh, Way of the Gun, where... Um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Sarah Silverman. Sarah, yeah, Sarah Silverman is just that loudmouth girl. She's just chap and chap and chap. And the guy, you know, she finally boyfriend comes up and goes, I'm gonna slap you stupid or whatever. And then he goes, I'll let you have the first shot. And he, Benicio Detroit just punches her right in the face first. And you just laugh because you don't expect it. You don't expect Benicio to punch Sarah Silverman in the face. Just like I didn't expect Nicholas to beat this lady to death almost. I was like, Holy shit, that's a that's a bit of a surprise to us. That may have been the the cage rage we talked about. Yeah, well, it is that thing that like it's this film like I don't know goes to the point of how 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 long can we keep you on side with these like depraved characters and like a, a lot of people and I think it's in a lot of cultures that like you don't like you you taught from a very early age you don't hit girls. Yeah, you know I mean, and it's like I think I think that's like a pretty much universal thing like i don't know like that 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 doesn't happen and like it's like it's weird that that's kind of held held right near to the end and it's like oh yeah we've kind of like we're on board for the rest of it the kidnap the killings yeah that's all cool but like oh whoa, whoa, you don't hit a woman like he's already shot a woman in the face like yeah. <laughs> um so before i let you guys go obviously you guys have a podcast and every podcast you listen to, they have the same spiel at the end. Where can like people listening find you guys if they want a different take on Nicolas Cage movies, just in case they think my ones are a bit off or they want just like to have a full rounded view of the spectrum. Where can we find you guys and kind of, yeah, like give us, give us the elevator pitch. Right, well, we are, you can socially find us, uh, Nicholas K. No, Nicholas K. I always do this. I always do this on our podcast. I always forget the name of our own damn thing. No one puts Nick in a cage podcast. You can find yeah. us on Facebook and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter under those same handles. Actually, our Twitter handle is uh, Nick Cage Pod. I believe that's what I have it as. See, I don't even know that. But you can find our podcast. We are on Spotify, Anchor, Google Play, or Google Podcasts. Um, Apple Podcasts. We use Anchor. That pushes pushes it out to like seven or eight of them. So yeah, yeah. if it's free, we're on them. We don't. Somehow, someone asked if we did SoundCloud. You have to pay for that. We're like, no, we're we we got a small audience. We're just a niche thing. We're not paying twelve dollars a month so you can push us out to four more people. You know, so yeah. you can find us there, and I'll send you our link too. So if you want to put it in your bio, we'll do the same for you on ours. No, that would be a hundred percent the thing. Like, like every guest I have on this, like I will put all your details in, in, in the show notes anyway, but sometimes people like to have it in their ears to like go, right. It's from the horse's mouth. 
we all know <laughs> show notes are probably never really read. People are either going to listen or not. Like, if yeah. they read the show notes, they're the true fans. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've thought of putting in some fake stuff in the episode descriptions just to see if anyone pays any attention to what the description is of the video of the episode. Or if they're just like, oh, I want to listen about this movie. I thought I was just sliding in some things in there just subliminally see if they even pick up anything that we say. Like the famous um, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon putting in, like, <laughs> The blowjob scene in uh, Good Will Hunting, just to see if the producers read the whole script. If they're yeah. oh, it's, it's got this kind of real nice tone. I, I like the stuff with like the therapist and like the genius, like janitor. But, but why is this this gratuitous like blowjob scene? Like, yeah, that's 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 perfect. I, 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 I might nick that idea as well. But uh, that was the only part that Ben wrote. Right. <laughs> it's, it's like in seven when they put that little slice of porn in in the uh, children's films and he's just one slice of it when in the oh, yeah, like, yeah 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 perfect well guys it's been an absolute pleasure having you guys coming on and talking about this movie we truly truly appreciate you bringing us on thank you so much thank you so much cheers So, what did you think of that one, guys? That was a real fun conversation to talk to two other people fairly new on their Nick Cage journey. Uh, I believe Scott and Matt have started up a new podcast as well called Watch This Movie or Die. Uh, A great, a great, great title. They're going through movies that they... Um, perceived to be some of the greatest and the things that have personally saved their lives as it were when it comes to watching a movie and could possibly do the same for you so definitely check that out I'm not sure what the status is with you don't put Nick in a cage but I'm sure like me at some point they'll get back on the Nick Cage train uh if you thought that we were unfair or were too kind on this movie please get in touch on all the social medias is at caged in pod on facebook twitter and instagram or if you want to you can always send me an email which is caged in pod at gmail.com it's as simple as that and if you feel really inclined you can support the podcast Uh, there's two simple ways of doing that one's really simple you just give me money and that's uh, uh, patreon.com forward slash caged in pod or the other one is uh, you give me money I give you something in return and that is a uh, caged in Tim Hornsby limited edition art print there's a hundred of these been printed up I've sold x amount uh, so once they're gone, they're gone. Me and Tim are going to work out another new, completely different design once all of these are sold. And yeah, hopefully you'll enjoy them. And they all come hand numbered with uh, a unique Nick Cage quote written on the back. They're really, really, really beautiful. And I can say that because I didn't, I, I didn't draw it. Like I, I'm the one who's just gone. You know what, Tim? We should sell these. So. Yeah, I would uh, recommend buying those, not just because I financially benefit from it, but just because they're great and Tim's great. And yeah, you need a bit of Nick Cage-inspired Superman artwork 
in your house. Come on, do it. Stop being stupid. As for next week's episode of the Caged In Pod, I will be talking about Army of One, the 2016 Larry Charles directed comedy in which Nicolas Cage plays a real life guy called Gary Faulkner who went on a mission from God to kill Osama Bin Laden. And yes, the film is as great as that description sounds. It's not about its flaws, but me and Brett will get into that next week. Uh, Oh yeah, I didn't mention, did I? I've just said Brett. I am joined by the fantastic illustrator and designer and one of the contributors for the hardest part of the ring podcast brett jones uh his again his artwork is amazing i found him uh well found out about him because he released this amazing zine called uh, the cult of cage and he lived he lives quite local to me and i was like great like i got chatting got the zine and then over time i was like you've got to come on the podcast your podcast and you've probably got the gear come on and we had an amazing conversation and from that conversation led to something pretty pretty cool which i will explain all next week so please do join us then when we will be talking about army of one and if you would like to watch along as well always keep forgetting to do these bits if you want to watch along with army of one if you live in the uk you can watch that on amazon prime there's a lot of amazon primes at the moment and as rightfully when i uh, put out a screenshot or put out the the spreadsheet which i have all this listed on uh, former guest and journalist and author mike pearl said perfectly this definitely looks like the prime of cage's life a perfect pun and a perfect joke thanks for that one mike uh and if you are in the u.s and you are looking to watch army of one it's not on streaming so you're gonna have to buy it rent it or download it all right guys uh as always, I've been Petrus this. I've been caged in. You've been amazing. I'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, 
and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.